Welcome to Calvary Temple Church Podcast. Thank you for listening today. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, please consider doing so. You'll find reference scripture and discussion questions for this sermon in the episode description. We hope this encourages you in your spiritual growth. You know, as we've been sharing some today, I was just thinking about, you know, there are people that are listening in all over the world. We've had people in Germany and Ireland and England and Canada and Colombia and uh, many states here in the United States and uh, Canada. And I'm probably missing places, but I'm just thankful for you helping us to get the word out. We also really want to focus on reaching our area here, that people will really, really encounter and know who Jesus really, really is. Thank the Lord for that for that privilege. And we've been, uh, over the last couple of months, I've been sharing a lot out of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark's the shortest gospel uh, in, in the Bible. I guess my name being uh, Mark, there's no pun intended on the short. I just not thought of that. But uh, Mark's the shortest gospel in the Bible. Never thought of that before till now. May never live that one down. But anyway, but... One thing about the gospel of Mark, it's a gospel of action. One of the key words that you read over and over in the gospel of Mark is immediately, immediately this happened, immediately Jesus touched lives. And throughout this this gospel, uh, Jesus' miracles of healings were immediate. They were instantaneous. But Mark includes one unique miracle a miracle of healing that wasn't immediate. It, had, it took two actions by Jesus. And this miracle is so different, it's so unique from all the others, we really need to stop and ask why. It's not just that Mark included this, this miracle uh, and, and how he describes it. We have to ask why he did that. But why does he place this unique miracle right at the turning point in the gospel? There's something significant here for us. Mark 8, 22 to 26, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. People, this is the story of the once more of Jesus. The once more of Jesus. Now this healing took place in a town of Bethsaida. It's a small town on the northeastern side of the Lake of Galilee. It's a town where Peter and Andrew and Philip were from. Jesus had called them to be his disciples. Read of that in John 144. Well, many of its people 
They would have, there in, in that area, they would have heard the stories of Jesus that were going on throughout Galilee. And even many of them would have the opportunity to, to see and hear for themselves. But sadly, most didn't respond well. They either ignored or rejected Jesus. This city is one of the three that Jesus named in Matthew eleven twenty to 24 that didn't respond well to Jesus, even though he did mighty miracles of, uh, in their midst. And he said, for you, Tyre and Sid- uh, Sid- Sidon, or, it would have been better for you. You'd, you know, if you'd have repented, if they'd have had this kind of stuff, they'd have repented and turned to the Lord. And he's looking at them, and Bethsaida's one of them saying, you know what, you're going to be in far more greater accountability because God's done such wondrous things in you, and you've ignored them or you've rejected them and put those off. But it says that that day in Mark 8, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. I love the devotional commentary by Dr. George Wood. He unpacks so much. Uh, It's a hard book to get now, but if you could, it would bless you. But he notes in here that Jesus took this man outside the village. Most of the miracles and the healings that Jesus did, he did in front of all the crowds and everything. But there was something that Jesus took this man aside, began to deal with him. Now, we read a phrase there that probably grosses us out. It says, Jesus spit on his eyes and put his hands on him. And we're going, what? But in that day, somehow it was understood that a righteous man like Jesus, that his spittle had almost like a healing agent would help people to believe. And so Jesus does this and he touches this man. But notice what Jesus says. Do you see anything? How often when Jesus would touch and minister to people, he'd say, go in faith, you're you're healed, receive that, walk in that. But with this man, he said, do you see anything? And he says, I see people, but they, they look like trees walking around. In other words, he had a partial healing. It was blurry, it was fuzzy, and he's looking around. And the Bible says once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. I love that. Once more, Jesus reached out. And then the Bible says his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. The fact that his sight was restored indicates to us there was a time when this man was able to see. When he was able to explain and knew what a tree would kind of look like, there's a sense that this man at one time had had sight and lost it. And now these people are bringing Jesus. Some are bringing him. We don't know where all the rest of the people in the town are, but some came to Jesus. And I see the way Jesus worked with this man. There's compassion. There's patience. There's love, and there's the power to heal, to open the blind eyes. People, it's not just how Jesus ministered to this man that's so remarkable. 
But John Mark, the author of this gospel, he placed this story in the gospel right here. And where he placed it is very significant. When we begin to look at the context of what's going on around this, you have to go, why this story here? Because people sometimes coming to spiritual light in our lives is progressive. It takes time. We don't get it all at once. We don't understand everything there is about Jesus all at once. And we need him over and over to touch us again. Open our eyes. See, in Mark 8, 14 to 21, and I won't read that today, right before this, Jesus has, just prior to this, he's fed the 4,000 people. The crowd is bigger than that because it's counting the men. There's women and children in that crowd that day. And Jesus had taken seven little loaves, and broke those and multiplied those to where 4,000 people were fed. And it was in a, probably a place where there were Jews and Gentiles. Before this, Jesus had fed 5,000 men, probably all Jews and, and, and the women and children, 10,000. He did that with five little loaves and two fish. He did it with a little boy's lunch from McDonald's. He fed the whole crowd. It was absolutely amazing. All right, maybe I added that part. But you get what I'm saying. And after they leave this scene where Jesus has now fed this 4,000, on the way, the disciples are noticing, we only have one little loaf of bread. We forgot to bring bread with us. We had all those seven big baskets left over, and we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus looks at these disciples, and they're worried about that. And Jesus begins to warn the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they're thinking, yeast in bread, we don't... And they're all worried and stressing and all of that. And, and the, it's noted that the Pharisees and Herod, they're on opposite sides politically and on the religious spectrum. What yeast do they share together in common? They both wanted the leaven of temporal power. They both wanted to run everything. They were resistant to Jesus. They weren't listening to his message. They were putting him off. They rejected his message entirely. And Jesus looks at these disciples. He's talking about, don't have that kind of yeast. And he finally says to him, to his disciples, do you still not understand? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears, but fail to hear. The disciples still don't get who Jesus is, and then Jesus opens the eyes of a man and does it twice. These disciples were getting some vision, some understanding of who Jesus is, but they still don't fully get who he is, that he's the Lord and how awesome he is. And then after this healing of this blind man, in Mark 8, 27, and through the remainder of that chapter, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And Jesus warned him not to tell anyone about him. 
Over two years before this point, Jesus has called these disciples to follow him, to walk with him, to be with him. And now Jesus' whole ministry is depending on whether they now see him for who he really is. Do they get this? Do they understand who they are following? Can they embrace that? Do they, do they understand? So Jesus is, is bringing this, helping them. You see, the area, and this is interesting, the area where Jesus took these disciples to say, do you get who I am, was the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's a popular area, or I mean, it's an area beyond where Jesus had normally ministered. He had been so popular in the Galilean ministry and around that region. But now Jesus took them to this area, Caesarea Philippi. Today we know it as the Golan Heights in the foothills of Mount Hermon. But Caesarea Philippi was absolutely packed full of pagan temples and idolatry. It was such an ungodly place. And this is where Jesus chose to engage the disciples and ask them, do you know who I am? Do you get who I am? And looking around and all the ungodliness that's around them. And so Jesus starts out and he says, who do people say I am? And the people had all kinds of opinions. Of course, we already know that Herod and the, and the Pharisees and religious leaders, they rejected Jesus altogether. But there were others where Jesus was popular, and, and the disciples began to say, and Jesus already knew, just pulling it out of the disciples. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're like one of the prophets. Maybe not necessarily literally, but what they're saying is you've got a ministry like them. You're, 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 they're, they're saying that you're the one that's going to be the forerunner to announce and pave the way for the Messiah to come. They're not seeing him as the Messiah. They're seeing him as one that would go ahead. And Jesus says, it's the most important question we'll ever ask ourselves or be asked. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that God has anointed to come and lead us out. It seems like the disciples are finally starting to get who Jesus is. The most important question, who is Jesus and then it says that Jesus began to teach them about what he's going to suffer, that he's going to go to a cross, that he's going to be killed, he's going to die, he's going to be rejected. And Peter, in all, and you know, Peter's so impetuous. Peter takes Jesus aside in a very kind, loving way, goes, Lord, can we talk about that? No, not Peter. He grabs the Lord and he's shaking him. Lord, you can't do that. You got it all wrong. You're the Messiah. This is not the way it works out. You're the one that's coming here to bring us victory and to bring us life. That's, you know, you're going to overthrow Rome's power. You're going to set up the kingdom of God. You're the Messiah. You can't die. You see, the Jewish people could not comprehend or even grasp or understand or consider that the Messiah would come and suffer and die. Wow. Jesus then turned to Peter. And in front of all the other disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
Peter first rebuked Jesus, and now Peter, Jesus turns it around and rebukes him. But he identified the source of Peter's rebuke. It came from Satan. Peter had been like the mouthpiece of the devil. I'm not saying he's not demon possessed here. But his ear is listening to the wrong thing. He's tuned into the wrong area. He, he, he's picking up on the wrong things. He's going, this is wrong. It, it can't be like that. You can't suffer. can be God's plan. And Jesus says to him, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. People, the devil uses our culture to get us as Christians and to get many other people to avoid suffering at all costs. Absolutely could not be what God would call us to be. I mean, after all, God wants to bless us, take care of us, pour out all kinds. Shouldn't be any hardships. Shouldn't be any suffering. Too many people seek to get Jesus to fit their own plans, their own understanding, their own perception of who God is and what he should look like. And it's like, and rather than submitting ourselves to God's plan, we're trying to get God to fit into ours. Don't put God in a box. To think that God can work in only one way, the way we think, you see, that's, we, we have limited perceptions and, and preferences. And these disciples that day, they thought that the Messiah would come only in a certain way, that he would come in in great power and he would overthrow Rome and, and, and all of that and they would rule and, and, and all that would be put down and the Jews would be taken care of and the kingdom of God would rush in. And Jesus says, no, it's another way. And get it. And how often do we get discouraged or down when we think God needs to work in a certain way and he needs to operate in a certain way and when we don't see it happening in our lives, we think, God, what's wrong? You're not coming through. You're messing up on this. And God's saying, trust me, follow me. You see, Jesus then called these disciples to take up their cross and follow him to count the cost of following him. Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And Jesus is there in that region of Caesarea Philippi. It's an ungodly, adulterous kind of place. And Jesus is saying in this area where we're around, if anybody's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. And Jesus said, we need to take up the cross and follow me. Now, when John Mark writes his gospel, 
He's writing to believers that are in the Rome area. This is not kind of a figurative idea. Oh, yeah, you might have to go through a hard place for Jesus, what we tend to think of. This is a literal thing that John Mark is writing to them because they would see the, the, the roads and everything in Rome and around Jerusalem and all of that. They would see them littered with crosses of people put on there, the rebels, the, the, the outcasts, those that weren't Roman citizens, those that seemed to be against Rome and against the lordship of Caesar, they would see them on that. And Jesus is saying to them, it may cost you some of your, some of you, your lives to, to, to come and follow me. But Jesus says, if you lose your life here, you're going to gain it for all of eternity. You'll get what real life is. But if you try to save your life, if you're brought before court, and they're saying either deny this Jesus or go to a cross and you seek to save your life and go, well, I'll hedge a little bit here. I, I really believe in you, Jesus, but I don't, want, I don't want that, so I'll deny you. Jesus says, you're ashamed. Wow. And people, we live in a world around us that we need to stand up for Jesus. And we need to tell other people who Jesus is and not be ashamed of him because we have an awesome God. And people, I don't know what it'll take to follow the Lord, but there, in, but there are many, many places in our world today where persecution is rampant, where people are giving their lives, they're in prison, they're put to death just for the cause of Christ. We have it pretty easy in our country right now as far as living for Christ. But we still need to stand up. There are those that want to laugh and make fun. Stand up. Tell people about Jesus. Coming back to this story, Jesus is saying, do you understand who I am? From that point, Jesus began to teach them of what it would mean to really, really follow him. You see, the disciples had some spiritual sight. But like the blind man who healed, was healed by Jesus in two steps, they needed another touch of Jesus to heal their spiritual eyes, to open, open their eyes and give them clear spiritual vision because they don't fully get who Jesus is. They've got him in a box. This is how Jesus will work. This is how the Messiah, Messiah will come and what he will do. And he had a whole other plan. And they had to fall in place with that and say, Lord, I will trust you. I will go after you. I will believe you no matter what it takes. And once more, Jesus put his hands on that man's eyes, and they were opened. How many people start walking with Jesus? They think they've got them all figured out, and then something happens. We need another touch to better understand him, to get the Lord in our lives, to see him and experience in him in a different way. Can you imagine what it would have been like for that man to have his eyes open that day to be able to see clearly? I have some idea. When I was turning 20 years old, had to have my eyes examined again to get my driver's license uh, renewed. And I went in for that renewal and they said, sorry, but your eyes aren't good enough. I went to an eye specialist. My mom took me there. And he said, young man, he said, you need surgery. 
I was born with congenital cataracts. Didn't know that. But my sight was so bad that I faced the possibility when I was turning 20 years old that I would never drive again. I prayed, and I prayed. He said, you need surgery. And I can't make you any promises, but that's what you need. And I prayed. I was in Bible school my first semester. I prayed, and I prayed. And I prayed for God's healing. I prayed for God's direction. And God clearly spoke to me and led me to go through with that surgery. It was 1974. And people, they did surgery way different then. When I talked to the eye specialist today, I said that was the dark ages. It was really risky for someone my age to have surgery then. Because they didn't do a little incision like they do today. They did big incisions in the eye. They went in with things that chop up that lens and they would vacuum it out. And they would put you in a hospital bed. And people, the shots I had, they were the most incredibly painful thing I've ever had. It was unbelievable. I had my first surgery. Then they put me in a hospital bed and they put my head between sandbags. And I was in that hospital for eight days, seven, eight days. I had to have a second surgery. I said, Put me totally out. I can't handle those shots. It was rough, people. It was tough. And then when it's all over, they send me out. And my eye has to heal. And I spend the next three months not knowing, is it going to be okay? Is it not? I went back to Bible school. And I used to read with a big magnifying lens and, and, and would follow that across the page. It took me an incredibly long, long time to do that. Three months Went back to the eye doctor. I was there that day with my dad. And now they're ready to put a hard contact in my eye. They did it so different then. They put that hard contact in my eye. People, it felt like a piece of dirt. It hurt. It was painful. I was sitting there in that hallway with my dad realized something. The light was so bright. It just lit up that place. And I looked down at my blue jeans, and I saw little white threads in my blue jeans. I didn't know those things were there. I looked down the hallway, and I could read the clock. Before, I wouldn't have even been able to see the clock on the wall. And now I'm reading it. When I traveled out there and we're driving in the car and I'm with my dad, I can look out in a, in a, across the field a mile away and I could see the farmhouse and I could actually see if somebody would walk across the yard before I wouldn't have even known there was a farmhouse there. I didn't have that good enough vision. People, my eyes were open. I could clearly see. I can't. I, I, that's how I picture for that man. People, I was so excited. It was absolutely, I was seen for the first time in my life in a way like I'd never seen before. And people, that day, Jesus put his hands on that man and touched him again. And his eyes were open and he saw clearly. And as wonderful as that physical healing is, God wants to do that in our spirits. He wants to open up our blind spiritual eyes. He wants to open up our, our deaf spiritual ears and cause us to see and hear in ways we never have.
I remember when I first came to Jesus, man, the peace that flooded my heart, the experience of knowing Jesus. But I have found as I've walked with the Lord, there have been places where I've been up against hard places and I don't understand where God's touched me again and showed me who he is and made himself more and more real in my life. We need a once more. We need a once more. We need a real clear vision of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Individually, we, you and I, we may need a touch of the Lord today. Maybe we thought we've had God all figured out. We've had him in a box, got him figured out. This is how God operates, and we got it there. But we need another touch. We need the Lord to open up our eyes to the greatness of who he is. You know, this COVID pandemic that has touched our world and impacted our world, Regardless of what you think of it, it has impacted our world. But I believe that God is using this season to give a break for the church and for our world to pause, to stop, to pause, and get our vision touched again, to get restored. We need a new vision of who Jesus is. The church today needs a new touch. We might, you might say we need a reset throughout church history. The church has had all kinds of times of losing its sense of direction, its calling, its purpose, and God sends a great movement and brings people back to understand who He is and go after Him. We need a restoration. Craig Keener wrote, if many Christians today have lost a sense of Jesus' presence and purpose among us, it may be that we've lost a sense of the mission that our Lord has given us. We need a new touch. People as the church, we need to see about reaching our world. We need God to open up our eyes. We need him to touch us and see. But let me ask, what do you need from Jesus today? How's your spiritual vision? How clearly are we seeing the Lord and his plans and his purpose? In the same way Jesus touched that young man or that man that day, he wants to give us clearer vision. If you're watching with us today or you're here today, I want to invite you to pray with me, to be able to say, Lord, touch my heart. If you're, if you're at a place where you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus, or maybe one time you did, but you've got away from that, God wants today to give you new sight. God today wants to give you new vision. Touch your heart in a powerful way. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are God. Father, we need a new touch from you. We need a new touch. You're watching today and never given your heart to Jesus. Pray this, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I don't see at all. But I need you, Lord Jesus, to come and touch my heart and give me spiritual insight. Open my eyes to see you clearly, to experience you. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person. Come into my life. Change me. And Lord, Help me to live with a new vision 
Help me to live and go after you and be your disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, whether we've been walking with the Lord or not, God wants to touch us in a new way.